Last Friday night, I was at uh, the Clipper game. The Clippers are a basketball team. They're the other uh, professional basketball team we have in town. But uh, I'm at this game, and uh, we're, we're leaving. We're getting ready in the third quarter. We're leaving. It's getting, getting old, kind of getting boring. And, uh, but at the end of the third quarter, they invite someone out of the stands to come to the floor and take a half-court shot to try to win a car. And so they invite this, you know, so I go, oh, let's watch this, watch this, you know. And so this guy, you know, they, they call a guy down out of the stadium and, uh, and he gets a chance of shooting a basketball one shot from half court. And if he makes it, he wins a new car. This is in the Staples Center in front of everyone. He takes the, car, the, the ball, he shoots it from half court and he makes it. He made this half court. I've never seen anyone make that shot, you know. And so the whole place, all Staples Center just starts screaming. I'm screaming. I'm going, no. Way. Did you see that? This guy just, just ran up there and makes the shot. The whole Staples Center is going crazy. Everyone in there is yelling, cheering for this guy. And the guy's just standing there. No emotion. He didn't smile. It wasn't like he was like, you know, dumped down or anything. He just stood there. I was like, all right. Then he goes over, they take his picture, and he walks off. And I'm thinking, what was that? I mean, how can you feel nothing? You know, you just made it. Did you expect to make it? I mean, a half-court shot in front of thousands of people and he makes it and shows no emotion whatsoever. And it just bugged me because in my mind I'm thinking, that doesn't make sense. And, and even to this point, today I'm trying to figure out, what, why? Why did he not do anything? You know, and I thought, well, maybe he's rich. Maybe he's like, oh, another car. You know, but I think if you're rich, what are you doing at a Clippers game? You know, but uh, what, uh, what was that all about? You know, why did he? You, and, and to this day, I have no idea. But I wanted to go down there and just shake the guy. And go, you just want a car. You just made a half-court shot. Show some excitement. And uh, earlier this week, um, something else happened. I, I, was, I was talking to some people who... Uh, I asked them if they believed in Jesus. And they're like, yeah, yeah, we believe in Jesus. Would you guys ever go worship him at church? No. Do you have any desire to serve him? No, not really. Do you guys pray or read the Bible or, you know, try to work at the sins in your life? No. But you believe in Jesus? Yeah, yeah. And I just had to look at him and say, I don't get you. I don't get it. You're telling me you believe in Jesus, but it does nothing for you. You don't feel anything. You're not excited about it. And again, it's like I wanted to shake them and go, don't you understand? I mean, if you believe in this book, you're saying you believe that you were headed because of your sin. You were headed before a holy God at the end of your life. You were going to have to stand before a holy God and he was going to punish you. For eternity, for all the things that you had done wrong, for all the sins in your life. But that that God loved you so much that He sent His Son down on this earth to die for you. So now, rather than spending eternity in, in His wrath, you've escaped that. You don't have to spend eternity being punished for your sin, but instead, you get, you get eternal blessings. And that does nothing for you. You just go on with life like nothing else happened. Just don't get it. And, and yet the truth is, is there are people like that everywhere. Haven't you met people who says, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but it does nothing for their life. And, and honestly, there's probably some of you in this room who you would say you believe in Jesus, but your life is no different because of it. And I, I just I got to say, I don't get you. I don't, I don't get that. 
how can you be saved from something so horrible and brought into something so wonderful and just sit there and say, yeah, it's fine, it's good. And it not evoke any type of desire or passion to serve Him. Yes, this morning we're going we're gonna to talk about the birth of Christ. And it's so easy, they talk about the birth of Christ, for us to kind of sit there and say, yeah, I've heard this before. Yes, don't do that to the birth of Christ. This is the most amazing thing that's ever happened. That God in heaven, our Creator, looked down at us and said, I love you so much. I'm going to send my son down to this earth. You know, if we've reduced it to just a Christmas story, something we read once a year, you guys, that is so wrong. This is something so amazing. The God of the universe came down to be with us. And we're going to study that story, you know, and, and back around Christmas time we, we began and we, we read the first chapter of Luke. And what I decided to do is we're just going to continue in the, in the book of Luke. We're going to read through, uh, we're going to study through the rest of the book of Luke. We're starting chapter 2 and go to the end of it. Okay, now understand Luke, I believe, is the longest book of the New Testament. Um, so we're going to be in here for a while. It may take a year and a half, two years to get through this book. And um, I remember when we started Revelation, that took us a year. And, uh, and a lot of people left during the, the study of Revelation. We don't like Revelation. Well, hopefully you like Jesus. Okay, we're going we're gonna to be looking at the life and, and the teachings of Jesus through the book of Luke probably for the next uh, year and a half to two years. Um, so we're going to start today in, in Luke chapter 2, since we went through chapter 1 back in December. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. It says this. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. And these words are probably pretty familiar to you, but let me just real quickly explain a few things. In the days of Caesar Augustus, Caesar Augustus was the, was the nephew of Julius Caesar, the Caesar of the time, and uh, he issues a decree, which means a law, that a census should be taken. Now, what a census is, is he was getting all the Roman citizens to come and, uh, and register their name. They would have to say their name, their occupation, basically what they made, and, um, and the amount of property, the possessions that they owned. It was, it was mainly for taxation purposes. Okay, so they're, they're getting all the, it's kind of like what we do for, uh, well, right now, we're getting together for income taxes. You kind of, you know, explain it, who you are, what you, you know, explain who you are, but, uh, you know, your, your, your name, you know, everything that you made this year, all that stuff, so that they know how to tax you. Okay, that's the same thing that's going on here for the most part. This is how they did it in those ancient days. Anyways, um, so Joseph and Mary, remember Mary is pregnant. Remember we we studied that a a month ago when um, she was told by that angel, you're going to give birth to a son. And and she's like, give birth to a son? I've never even been with a man. How how can this be? And the angel says, what is conceived of you is, is, is of the Holy Spirit. And so she's pregnant, she's with Joseph, they're, they're pledged to be married, um, which means they're, they're not married yet, it's like an engagement, um, except understand engagement back then is, is a little different from engagement now, in that it's still, it's still the same idea of we're going to get married soon, um, but back then when you were engaged, you were legally bound. The only way to break off an engagement is with a divorce. 
So even though you weren't allowed to be together yet, you were still legally bound. That's the state that Joseph and Mary were in. And here she is pregnant. And now they're going to register in Bethlehem um, because of the census by Caesar Augustus. Then you get to verse 5. It says, He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time for the baby to be born, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Again, probably verses that are very common to, her, to you. Mary gives birth. And let me just say a few words about Mary real quickly because uh, we don't talk about Mary a lot. And I think we ought to talk about her more. But Mary was an incredible woman. From the things that we study about her in the Bible, it's, it's clear that she's a woman that understood the scriptures. It seemed like she, was, she became a very devout follower of Christ. Um, a woman that is absolutely worthy of example and following. You've you got to understand some things. Okay, Mary here is pregnant... But it was from the Holy Spirit. Now, imagine, here's a teenage girl coming to her parents and saying, Mom, Dad, I'm pregnant. But it's not what you think. It's, it's from the Holy Spirit. Oh, okay. You know, I mean, imagine what that was like for this young teenage girl. And we have, we have some, some, some ideas here in Scripture, just by the way people treated them. There's a very strong possibility that at that moment she became an outcast. I mean, you got to understand, in that society, it was still wrong to have sex before marriage. Now, it's still wrong in God's eyes and in the church's eyes. I mean, it's still disgusting in God's eyes. But as a society, the world somewhat has you know, accepted that nowadays. It wasn't like that then. And so understand, for her to be pregnant outside of wedlock was a very shameful thing. And yet she in her heart knew, but I didn't do anything wrong. This is God. This is God. And yet even through this period of rejection because of her faith in God, she could still have joy in knowing that she was going to give birth to the Savior of the world. And her life was an absolutely amazing life and a life that is worthy of imitation. But you guys... Let's not go beyond Scripture when we talk about Mary. Let's not start making things up about her that aren't true. Um, let's stick to what the Bible says. There have been some teachings over the years that are just absolutely false about Mary. And they've taken her to a place that she doesn't deserve. In fact, she would, she would hate to know that she was taken there. Uh, for example, in, in 1854, okay, so about 150 years ago, came out this doctrine called the Immaculate Conception. Have you heard of that? The Immaculate Conception. Well, that isn't referring to the birth of Christ. That's referring to the birth of Mary. That people are saying that Mary herself was born without a sin nature. It's a doctrine that's told to millions of people. And millions of people believe that she was born without a sin nature. You guys, nowhere in Scripture are you going to find that. It's this teaching that she was born without a sin nature, therefore she went through her whole life without sinning. Okay, that's just not true. Jesus Christ is the only one that lived a perfect, sinless life here on the earth. Mary, while she lived a great life, she was still a sinner. In fact, in Scripture, she refers to Jesus as her Savior. Why? Because she herself needed a Savior. 
from her sin. It's a wonderful, wonderful, incredible, blessed woman. The Bible says that generations after generations will call her name blessed. And absolutely. But let's not say things about her that go against what Scripture says. Another teaching that has been taught throughout, uh, well, throughout, throughout the ages, this one, is the idea of the perpetual virginity of Mary. Another doctrine that's taught and accepted by millions. And uh, it's the idea that she remained a virgin her whole life. But again, that's not what the Bible teaches. In fact, Matthew one twenty five it says, Joseph kept her a virgin until she gave birth. Okay, so she was a virgin, not her whole life, but until she gave birth. In fact, Scripture talks about Jesus' brothers. Okay, it, it talks about in uh, Matthew 12, verses 46 through 50, it talks about, you know, Joseph, uh, Jesus' you know, father and mother and his brothers. Okay, where did his brothers come from? They weren't adopted. Okay, she had other children. Okay, just, just very clear things in Scripture. Then, a, a big one is in 1950. Okay, so this is 50 years ago. You may have heard of the doctrine of the Assumption of Mary. That was made about 50 years ago. And this, this is saying that Mary was raised three days after death, seated at the right hand of Christ, and is the Queen of Heaven. Okay, because there's not a hint of this anywhere in the Bible. But it's, it's these people saying, well, you know what, if she was born without sin, you know what the Bible doesn't say, and that she lived the whole sinless life, then she must have raised just like Christ did, and now she's at the right hand of Christ, and she's the Queen of Heaven, and we can pray to her. And you guys, it's just, read the Bible yourself. Read it over and over. Read it a hundred times. You won't find a hint of anywhere in Scripture. My point is, is not to be disrespectful to Mary, but I think we're being disrespectful to her when we, we elevate her and put her on par with Christ. I mean, the latest thing that millions of people are trying to do is name her the co-redemptress with Christ, or, or the term the mediatrix of Christ. And you guys, again, there's no evidence of that in Scripture. In fact, again, the Bible says the exact opposite. 1 Timothy uh, 2.5 says that there is one mediator between God and man. And that's Jesus Christ. Okay? It's not Jesus and Mary. There's one Redeemer. There's one Mediator. One person through whom we pray, and that is Jesus Christ. And I know that's hard for some of you to hear because you've grown up hearing these things and you think, well, that's the way it's always been. No, that's not the way it's always been. These are things that have been brought up through the centuries and a lot of it just in the last hundred years or two. And so... As you study the Bible for yourself, you will see that Mary was a wonderful, incredible woman, worthy of example, but in no way is she the Queen of Heaven uh, or someone that we should be worshiping and, and bowing down to. Um, and uh, anyway, she's pledged to be married to, to Joseph and expecting a child. It says, while they were there, the time for the baby to be born. And uh, she gives birth to her firstborn son. She wraps him in cloths and places him in a manger. Now, there's, there's nothing unique about her wrapping the baby in cloths. And some say, wow, you know, that's, that's, it's, that's what they did with all the babies. You know, it's just like when you go, even today, you know, when, when you have a baby and, the, you know, they wrap them all tight in that little blanket and they just come together all compact. It's the same idea. She, she wraps them, you know, you know in, in these cloths and has his body all tucked in tight. But then she places him in a manger. A manger is the feeding trough. That's, that's where a horse or you know, a cow or whatever would, would eat out of. And because there was no place for them to stay in the inn, here she is in, in probably, it was probably a cave. That's where they would keep the animals. 
And uh, there she is giving birth in this cave where animals would be. And uh, she would take the feeding trough and just place the baby in this manger. The, the Son of God, okay, born into the world in this cave, in this little feeding trough. It goes on in verse 8. And it says, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. So right by that cave, there's this field nearby, and these shepherds are, you know, watching the sheep at night. Now understand, shepherding is a pretty lowly occupation. And so you've got these lowly shepherds watching their sheep, and suddenly an angel appears to them. See, a lot of times we think, you know, God's going to work through, you know, the powerful, the rich, the famous. And, oh, if God got a hold of that person's life, imagine what they could do. And yet, here God is choosing the lowly shepherds. And he sends an angel to them. And it says they were terrified. Well, of course. I mean, can you imagine? You know, here you are your whole life, you're watching these sheep, and an angel appears. And these, these shepherds are just terrified by it. The angel says, don't be afraid. I'm not here to destroy you. I'm here to give you good news of great joy. Your Savior's been born. And you're going to find Him. You can go find Him right now, wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. This angel says, I, I bring you good news of great joy. Let me ask you something. Does the good news of Christ's birth still bring you great joy? Honestly, has this story gotten old to you? Or do you go, no, that was God because He loved me so much. He had His own Son lying there in this, this horse's feeding area for me. And He was going to save me from my sins. He left His throne in heaven to come down to that for me so that I can be saved, so that I can be forgiven. I still meet so many people who call themselves Christians that just walk around so bummed out all the time. And I understand there are times in life when it is difficult and it's okay to mourn here and there, but the, our lives should be filled with joy. We've got a relationship with our Creator. He went through this for you because He loved you that much. Pretty incredible. Verse 13 says, Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host, so here's more angels, appear with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom His favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the, angel, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. 
Okay, so after that one angel appears, it says a bunch of angels appear, and they all say, glory to God in the highest. You know, here comes glory to God because this child's going to be born, he's going to bring glory to God, and he's going to bring peace to men on whom his favor rests. It's like, okay, we here down on the earth get to have peace with God now. Understand, we didn't always have that. The Bible in Romans explained that there was a point when we were enemies of God because of our sin. And we needed this Savior to pay for our sins so that we could have peace with God. So this whole chorus of angels is screaming this out to these shepherds. Imagine being one of these shepherds. These angels, you know, this whole flock of angels, or flock, I don't know what you call them, a bunch of them, of angels. They're, they're saying, glory to God, you know, peace on earth. You know, you're going to find this baby. So immediately after these, these shepherds see this, they go running off. It says, so they hurried off to go look for this baby in the manger. Now, imagine if the narrative had said, the angels leave and the shepherds looked at one another and said, eh, maybe we'll check it out a little bit later. But right now, we've got sheep to tend to. You'd go, how stupid. The Son of God is born and you're concerned about your sheep? Yet, you guys, this is what so many people do today. They say, well, I don't want a relationship with Jesus yet. I believe He's the Messiah. And I believe I can have a relationship with him, but not yet. There's just too many things in my life right now to follow Jesus. Maybe when I'm older. Right now, I just got a really good job, a promotion. We're, you know, we're, 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 you know, remodeling our house. Maybe later. I've got sheep right now. I've got other stuff that's more important. Some of, some of you have been coming to this church for weeks, months, and even years. And you know what the truth is. And you know that you can have a relationship with Jesus Christ, and yet you're still putting it off. You're saying later. And I'm saying, what, what could be more important than coming to a relationship with God? It's like these shepherds. What, what could have been more important for them to do than to just run off and go find this Savior? I would encourage you, if you have not yet come to a relationship with Christ, i got to ask you, honestly, what in the world could be more important than that in your life right now? Take some time to think that through. What is keeping you from following Jesus and pursuing Him? These shepherds, they immediately run off, and it says that once they saw the baby lying in the manger, they go off and they start telling everyone about Him. You know, once they hear about Jesus, once they actually see him and they go, it's just like the angel said it was going to be. And imagine the excitement of there he is, the Savior, just like those angels just announced. And they go out and they start spreading the news to everyone. They start telling everyone, you got to understand what we just saw. An angel told us that this baby's going to be born. You know, then a a bunch of angels came and and, and they all started worshiping God because this baby's going to be born. And we saw him. He's our Savior. They start telling everyone they run into. And then in verse 20, 21, it says this. It says, On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. When the time of their purification according to the law of Moses had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of Lord of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. 
Okay, let me explain this. This, this isn't unusual, okay, what they're doing here. This is pretty much what all the Hebrews did. This is what all the Jews did. Is on the eighth day, they would have their child circumcised and name him then. This goes back to the Abrahamic covenant. Okay, back to Father Abraham. Remember, God changes, his name was Abram, and he changes his name to Abraham, which is kind of like a plural ending because he's going to be a father to many nations. And at that time, he says, and the sign of my covenant to you is, is for you to be circumcised. And so that's what the Jews began to do after that, is that on the eighth day, they would circumcise their children and give them their name at that time. And that's why they wait till eight days before they give them the name Jesus you know, as I, I was thinking about it this week, I thought, you know, if we still did that, if, if my dad waited eight days to give me a name, maybe he could have come up with something better than Francis. Okay, but uh, he didn't. Um, anyways, the, here he is. He's on the eighth day, goes through the normal ritual, you know. It's just, it's just like a normal baby. They would, they would you know, circumcise him. You know, then, then when the time of purification came up, they, they come and they consecrate him to the Lord. And uh, understand what this is. When it says that they were consecrating him to the Lord and they bring the sacrifice of the two pigeons or the two doves, um, this is not a sin offering. Okay, some people get mistaken. They go, well, why would they offer a sin offering? Because Jesus was sinless. This isn't a sin offering. What this is, is what you would do is you would take your firstborn meal. This goes back to the time of Exodus. Remember uh, out of Egypt, you know, um, Prince of Egypt, uh, you know, when the, the 10th plague uh, and all the firstborn are, are, are slain, in, in, uh, slain in all of Egypt. Um, after that, what, they, what God says is he wanted their firstborn males to be given to him, consecrated to him for the service of the Lord. But what God does is, in, in place of that, is he chooses the tribe of Levi, of the 12 tribes of Israel, and he says, the Levites, they're going to be like the firstborn of Israel. So all the males out of the tribe of Levi are going to be given to me. And they're the ones that are going to become the priests. And so what the people in the other tribes would do was when they had their firstborn son given, rather than giving their son to the temple service, because the Levites were already doing that, they would bring a sacrifice. Does that make sense? And so the sacrifice here, it's interesting. The interesting thing about their sacrifice is that Joseph and Mary bring two doves or two young pigeons. That was a sacrifice you would bring if you were pretty poor and you couldn't afford um, a lamb. And so understand, here, here the Messiah is born through a poor, poor couple um, and announced to these shepherds and given birth in this horse's trough. Um, and that's how the Savior of the world comes down into to the earth. Anyways, we read, here's, here's uh, an interesting thing that happens. Verse 25. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout he was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought the child, Jesus, to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Okay, that's kind of a strange story there. Um, because we don't hear anything else about Simeon. This is the only thing we know about Simeon. 
is that he was a man that knew somehow God revealed to him that he would not die until the Messiah was born. Now, some say maybe it was because of his knowledge of the scriptures and his study of the Old Testament scriptures. Um, you know, when you study back, remember when we talked about the book of Daniel and how you could kind of time out and know about when Christ was going to come and the exact day when he was going to be crucified. You know, I say, well, maybe he was such a great, devout studier of the Old Testament. That's very possible. And he probably was. But also, it seems that, that God himself had such an incredible relationship with Simeon that when these parents brought the child to him, he knew immediately who this child was. But one of the interesting things that he says in in verse 32 is that he's going to be a light for revelation to the Gentiles. He's going to be a light for revelation to the Gentiles. The Gentiles were regarded by the Jews as people who were in the dark. They were walking in the darkness. Now, the interesting thing about this phrase is the Old Testament did teach that the Messiah was going to be a light to the whole world. But the Jews of that time rejected that idea. The Jews of that time thought the Messiah would come strictly for them, to save them. And so this idea of him being a light to the, to the Gentiles was something that uh, the rest of the world was not really believing at that time. But so, so we understand some things about Simeon. Of this man had an incredible relationship with God. It's like God spoke to him and he knew that this child was the Messiah. He knew that this child was going to change the world. I mean, look, look what happens. He continues in verse 33. It says, The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And a sword will pierce your own soul too. Okay. Okay, let's, let's think about this man here for a second. Okay, he's been told by God that he wouldn't die until he saw the Messiah. So he's been waiting all this time. Joseph and Mary walk in and this man takes the baby. Okay, and it says in verse 33 that the child's father and mother, Joseph and Mary, it says they marveled at what just happened. We can imagine. I mean, when you when you first give birth to a child and you're in the hospital and someone even says, oh, let me see your baby. Oh, he's so cute. You go, oh, thank you. And you get all these great warm feelings. Imagine if someone takes your baby and goes, now I can die. Okay, I've waited all my life for the birth of this child. Okay, and, and he says, you know, this is the child. This is the one that is going to, you know, give revelation to the Gentiles. This is the one that's going to bring glory to Israel. And then he says that this is the child that is destined to cause the falling or the rising of many in Israel. This child is going to change people's lives radically. Cause people to die in his name. Cause people to rise into power in his name. To this day, that, that prophecy holds true. I mean, it's, it's Jesus that's in the center of every religious controversy. There are people who cannot stand the name of Jesus and people who absolutely love and would die for the name of Jesus. Talk about rising or falling. What you do with Jesus Christ determines whether you go to heaven or hell. So here Simeon is, is this is the child that's destined to cause the rising and the falling of all of Israel of many of Israel, but then he also makes a statement that he says, and he's going to be a sign that will be spoken against, verse 35, so that the thoughts 
of many hearts will be revealed. Can you hear that phrase? So the thoughts of many hearts would be revealed. What Jesus was going to do was He was going to reveal the true thoughts of our hearts. He was going to expose the true colors of mankind. See, that's what Jesus does today. There are many people who reject Jesus. There are many people on the earth who do this. They say, you know what? I don't need a Savior. I'm a good person. How many people do you know who believe that? I'm going to go to heaven because I'm a good person. I don't need Jesus. What is that revealing about their hearts? It's a heart of pride. It's a heart of pride that says, I can stand before a holy, perfect God and He's going to look at me and say, you're great, come on into heaven with me. Rather than the heart that says, I know that I've sinned and offended that God. Thank God that He gave me a Savior, Jesus. It reveals our hearts. That's what Jesus was going to do for all time. And, then, and that's what Simeon says He's going to do. And then He looks at Mary, He says... And a sword is going to pierce your own soul also. He says, this child is going to bring pain to you in the sense of here her mother is and one day she would be standing there watching him crucified on a cross. And here Simeon is sharing all of this. Pretty incredible man, but that's all we hear about Simeon there in Scripture. And then there's one lady that I want to look at real quickly in the last three verses. There was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. This is another story about a, just a remarkable old woman 84 years old, who had been a widow for most of her life. And it says that her life consisted of just staying at the temple, worshiping God day and night, fasting, praying, worshiping Him, praising Him. And when, when Simeon goes up to this child, she runs up too at that same moment and she starts telling everyone about who this child is. Again, I, there's not a whole lot written about Anna, but still, these two individuals, to me, I, I just think, why, why did God do that? Why did God choose these two individuals to give this special revelation of? You've got to understand something. We have these extra biblical writings called the Talmud, written by some of the Jewish, Jewish rabbis. And in that, it says that those 400 years between Malachi up to this point, it says the heavens were as bronze. In other words, the heavens were just silent. There weren't like prophets that were speaking like all throughout time. There's these 400 years of silence before the time of Christ. And yet during that period of time, it seems like God spoke to these two individuals. It seemed like they, they got this revelation that, you know, there's one guy who wasn't going to die until he saw the Messiah. This other woman who was just day and night at the temple worshiping. And the moment she saw that baby, she knew also. And that's all we know about them. And yet to me, I think that's so significant. Because God chose to speak to these two individuals unlike he, he spoke to anyone else in the world at that time. And I guess what it made me think of was if God were to reveal something right now to two people in Simi Valley, 
Would you be one of them? And why not? I mean, to me, I don't see anything supernatural about Anna and Simeon. They were just normal people. But they were so devoted to God. Their lives were all about Him. And I think there was an intimacy in there. And yet it's something that any one of us could have. Do you have any desire to be a person like that? I mean, honestly, do you you have any desire to say, gosh, I want to have just a unique relationship with God. I want to be so intimate with Him that I'd have a relationship with Him like no one else. I just want to pursue Him and be serious about praising Him, worshiping Him, praying to Him, studying the Scriptures like these two. Sometimes we aspire to be so many different things in life. And why not say, "I, I want to be a guy like that. I want to be a woman like that that people just know is absolutely devoted to the Lord because I am that excited about a relationship with Him. What I wanted you to get from this passage and the story of His birth is how people responded to this Christ. You've got angels in heaven celebrating Him. You've got shepherds dropping everything and running to Him. You've got Simeon who waited his whole life for his birth. You've got Anna that goes running out telling everyone about Him. When the people heard about Jesus and saw Jesus, the Bible says they worshipped God for that. Then they went out and told everyone that they knew. My prayer is that we would do the same. That when you really understand and worship God for what He's done for you, that it's not something you just keep to yourself, but there's so much excitement over your relationship with God that you go and you tell people about it. Um, I'd really encourage you, you know, because some of you, you can leave here feeling so blessed because you've got a relationship with God, yet there's so many people who don't. And to go out there and have an impact on those people. I encourage you when you leave and maybe when you return the Bibles, you know, at that table, just grab a few cards, just more people to write, you know, and, and share with. Um, to tell them about your relationship with God. My prayer is that this doesn't get old to you, worshiping God, hearing about His birth, taking communion, but still in your life, it's the greatest thing that's ever happened to you. And that it still brings you great joy, like it did to all the people back then.